0: The passage this morning comes in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town, they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for this town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Would you please be seated? And would you please join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. In Luke chapter 10, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray as we look at this passage this morning that you would sanctify your people by the work of your spirit, making us more like you. That we would exalt in your righteousness. We would repent of our sin. We would cling to you as our only source of hope. Of grace and mercy. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well we're in Luke chapter 10 this morning. uh, And if you remember in Luke chapter 9 last week in verse 51. The text says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And what happens from Luke chapter 9 to Luke chapter 19 is that we now see the process of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem for his impending crucifixion. Now the time period from Luke chapter 9 to Luke 19 when he finally arrives in Jerusalem is some six to nine months that these chapters will last over. And you begin to see a number of changes in the ministry And the words of Jesus. One of those examples we see in the passage this morning. You see from Luke chapter 1 to Luke chapter 9. In the beginning of every gospel for that matter. We have seen Jesus working and proclaiming the kingdom. And by and large he has told all of those who have heard his message. To keep it to themselves. Many times he has warned them. Do not tell anyone what you have seen and heard. Go your way. Go to your home. Keep these things to yourselves. But we begin to see a transition from that to something much more public beginning in chapter 9. And you see, this this makes sense as we understand the the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Because up until chapter 9, Jesus had been preparing for this moment of public ministry but wanting to uh, maintain the providential arrangements of God the Father He did not want too quickly for the word to get out of who he was. He didn't want to hasten the time of his approach to Jerusalem. And so he had wisely instructed people to keep the word largely to themselves. We get to chapter 9 when Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And we begin to see the urgency of Jesus' ministry change. Jesus realizes that now he is on this journey to Jerusalem, and now is the time for his public ministry among the people. A number of times in these few chapters, he will speak about his death. He will talk about how he will be betrayed into the hands of those who will murder him. He will speak about it in a variety of ways, and the disciples will often say, No, Lord, this will never be. And yet Jesus speaks of it. And in chapter 10 this morning we see something else of the urgency urgency of this new public phase of the ministry of Jesus. He gathers 72 disciples and he says I'm going to send you out to go before me. Now you see why that logically makes sense in Jesus ministry. The day of Jerusalem is hastening. His approach to the city is coming quickly. And he realizes now is the time to get the word out. But Jesus can be in one time, at one place. And so he decides to send 72 in pairs ahead of him to the towns and the cities where he would go. That they would prepare the way. They would plant the seeds. They would till the soil. That when Jesus arrived in a city or a town, the people would be ready for the reception of the word of God from the Son of God. And so this morning as we look at this passage, what we see is the 72 are sent out. And Jesus will speak about two different groups of responders, okay? And this is very simple. We experience this even when we share the gospel today. There are those who receive the message. They're represented in verses 1 through 9. There are those who reject the message. They're in verses 10 through 16. Now, along the way, as we look at each response to the gospel message, we'll see different commands or exhortations from the Lord Jesus on how we're to engage those who receive the message versus those who reject the message. But Before we get there, I want to talk about one thing I think is very peculiar about this text. You see, Jesus, in speaking about those who receive and those who reject the message, He gives them very different instructions on how they're to engage them. It's polar opposites. I'm not sure if you notice that. For those who receive, you go into their homes. Those who reject, you stand in their streets. For those who receive, you impart the peace to their home. For those who reject, you proclaim the impending judgment upon them in the city streets. For those who receive, you sit and you eat with them in their homes and you heal. For those who reject, you shake the dust off your sandals and you leave and you go to the next town. But there's one thing that Jesus says about both the rejectors and the receivers that is the same. I'm not sure if you picked up on it. In verses 9 and 11, Jesus says, to both those who receive and those who reject, you're to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. It's a very interesting phrase. Okay, we know that Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom, but Jesus has spoken about the kingdom in such a way that we're to understand it is Jesus who brings the kingdom near to us. He has said, I'm the one who reveals the secrets of the kingdom to you, my disciples and my apostles. But you see, this line that Jesus tells them to say, that the kingdom of God has come near, is a past tense phrase. It doesn't say the kingdom of God will come near when Jesus arrives in your town. The kingdom of God is coming near through Christ. It says the kingdom of God has come near. And I will tell you this morning as we consider this passage, Jesus is beginning to broaden the disciples' understanding of the nature of the kingdom. And here's what he's saying to his disciples. As I, the Son of God, have brought the kingdom near to you, So now you, citizens of the kingdom, as you go into this world, you bring the kingdom of God near to those around you. And so he tells them, proclaim to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You have witnessed it in us. You have seen it in our actions. You've heard it in our words. Now much could be said about that sentence, but let me say I believe this begs a very important question. It begs a question about us as Christians, what type of kingdom are we proclaiming? As we go about our daily lives, what type of kingdom are people hearing about from us? What type of kingdom are they witnessing in our actions? I would suggest to you as you look at the text this morning, that as the 72 went out to the towns and the cities in which they were going, That there was almost no need for them to indicate that they were with Jesus. I think the people that they came into contact with largely knew that these were followers of Christ. After all, these are the fools not carrying their knapsacks. These are the ones who don't carry any money in their purses. They don't have extra sandals. They're the the crazy people who are not greeting anybody on the road, but kind of hustling with urgency from town to town. These indeed are the followers of Jesus. That would have been well known. So the question isn't whether the people of the towns would have known that these are Christ followers. The question is, what was the message then that they were communicating as representatives of the kingdom? What were the people hearing in their words? What were they seeing in their actions? As I say to you, I think it's an important question for us to ask in both our worst moments and our best moments. What are those who are watching us, our children, our communities, our neighborhoods, our neighbors our co-workers, what are they learning about the kingdom of God? All of you proclaims a message. It's not whether you will proclaim a message, it's what message you will proclaim. So we must ask ourselves the question, what kingdom are we sharing with those around us? Now as we consider again this text, you you see there are two groups of responders here. Let me talk first of all about those who receive. They begin in verse 3 really. As Jesus speaks about the harvest being plentiful, he says to his disciples, go on your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. From the very outset, Jesus wants to let it be known what is the nature of your work in this world. And here's how he describes it. You're a soft, squishy, edible animal. Okay? And I send you into the pen with the carnivores. That's the work that you've been entrusted with doing. Sheep among the wolves, okay? Make no mistake, the work of the Christian in this world, proclaiming the message of the gospel, declaring the kingdom in this world is not a safe or comfortable work. Uh, we, We ought not make that mistake, okay? And Jesus says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Those are words that communicate both the urgency of the message and the provision of the Father. That is to say, the message is important, okay? Don't be distracted with the things of this world. Even the greeting part. Most commentators say that the salutations of the day, they were long and they were arduous. And Jesus is saying, you don't got time for that. Don't stop on the road and have a meal with somebody and go through the greeting process and then the next day head to the town. All right, give them the, the good old like, hey, good to see you, but I gotta go. I've got urgent matters. This is the way sometimes I feel before a service, right? And uh, we've got good conversations going, but the music is playing and Jeremiah is about to stop. And I'm like, i got to get up front. And I want to say, you know, I would love to talk to you, but not now. Can't do it. Mm-hmm. There's an urgency, okay? Jesus communicates the urgency here and the provision of the Father. Don't take a knapsack. Don't take a money bag. The Father will give you what you need when you need it. He says, whatever house you enter, first say peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. If not, it will return to you. That's a kind of strange line. No matter how many commentators I read, I don't quite understand what it means to put your peace on the house. I do believe it's something like a benediction imparting uh, the the peace of God to the household that you're coming into contact with, and if there's a son of peace there, that is, if there is a child of faith, if there is someone who comes in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the foreknowledge and providence of the Father, those who have been elected, if they are there and they respond to the gospel message, your peace will remain on them. But if not, your peace will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Again, And there's an urgency there. Find a house. Find believers. Minister there and make that your anchor in that town. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Even the eating. Okay, when you go into the house, eat what they provide for you. Yeah, that sounds like a good hospitality line. But it also, it goes towards the fact that the disciples were going into both Jew and Gentile areas. They were likely going to be sitting in homes with food that was less than kosher. I believe this is something of a foreshadow of what Christ begins to work in the book of Acts through the vision that Peter receives. He tells them when you go into the home, eat eat what they provide for you. Eat the food that is given to you as part of the message of the kingdom. Okay? Now, all of this, the commands for the disciples who will go and preach the word and be received, there's a lot, a lot for us to learn from this passage. But let me say, the Gospels, the book of Acts, they are descriptive books. They're not prescriptive. So we don't read this and say, okay, everything the disciples do, we do. Right? We would get ourselves into a whole heap of trouble if we did that. When you go out into the world, don't bring your bag or your money or your sandals, okay? Don't bring anything with you. And when you go there, impart the peace on the house. And if they reject you, shake your shoes off the dirt. Okay, people are going to think you're crazy. You don't have to do all that. But there are principles that come out of this passage that go together with the exhortation from the epistles for the followers of Christ in proclaiming the kingdom of God to this world. Let me simplify it for you by asking you this question. When is the last time... That you had a meaningful conversation with somebody who is not a follower of Christ. Now think about it. When's the last time you ate in somebody's home, as is described in this passage? Or you had, dare I say, someone eat in your home who is not a follower of Christ, not a Christian. When's the last time that you engaged them with the truths of the kingdom? You, you built a relationship with them. You showed them the, the, the beauty of the gospel message. I would challenge you to say, okay, let me think about the last month. How often in the last month have you engaged with those who need to hear the message of the gospel? I I imagine in the town that we live in, in the communities that we're in, the circles that we live in, that this doesn't happen very often. We need to be challenged and stretched. Of course we do. If If you look at yourself and you say, you know what, last month I did it one time. Try to do it two times next month. The nature of this work is uncomfortable. After all, we're sheeps in the midst of wolves. Okay, that's the nature. Yet we're called to proclaim the kingdom uh, to a watching world. If we believe that the gospel truly is the only hope of salvation for all of humanity, then there ought to be an urgency for us as there was an urgency for the 72. Take a look at those who reject the message. Verse 10, it says, Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. You see, there's this other group of people. That Jesus will also describe. And he uses verses 13 through 16. To accentuate that message. He speaks about Chorazin and Bethsaida. And how how it would be unbearable for them. Even more unbearable than the Gentile cities. Of Tyre and Sidon. And here he speaks about those. Who reject the gospel message. And as he's speaking about it. He tells them go into the public street. And proclaim to them. That if they do not receive the Lord Jesus Christ. That judgment awaits them. And he says, wipe off your sandals before them. Now, let me tell you something. I, I think if, if we think about how this passage challenges us, if you were challenged by the question of how, how often do you engage non-Christians in this world for the sake of the gospel, you'll likely be even more challenged by this exhortation here for those who reject Jesus. You see, because... What Jesus speaks about here is offering to those who reject the gospel, offering to them an image of judgment that they will not easily forget. And, and we don't do that. It just isn't something that comes natural to us. You see, whether it's because we're people pleasers and we just don't want to offend, or we're afraid of the political correctness of making some uh, 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 objective statement about eternity, We don't do this. Often if we work up the guts to share the gospel and someone rejects that message, we say, okay, did my best, but I want to keep this friendship. So let me not push it. Let me not go any further. You see the image that Jesus gives. This image is a very important one. Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against. You see what Jesus was saying. Listen, if you build a wall and you reject the Lord Jesus, here's what we're saying to you, okay? You are under judgment. There's no hope for you apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's no hope for you, nor your households, nor your children, nor your neighbors, nor even the dust of your town. There's no hope. There's no hope for you apart from the hope of the gospel. And we want you to remember this image. Even the sand of your town is under judgment. Now, not literally, okay? Okay? But it is under judgment because of sin apart from the hope of Jesus. And here's how the image works. Much like a sacrament. Lord willing in these towns and cities where these men went and they declared this gospel. And it was rejected and they shook off the sand from their sandals. Lord willing some in that town would wake up one morning. They'd be making their way from their house to the marketplace or their house to their workplace. And they would say oh Look at that dust. The dust I just kicked up and it got all over my feet. That reminds me of something. What did that guy say about dust? Oh, yeah, that's right. Judgment. I wonder what he was talking about. Okay? Or they're slipping on their sandals for the morning and they say, what did that, those two guys that came, what did they say about their sandals and the dust? Wasn't it something about good news of the kingdom? See, they provide these lasting images that would be used by the Spirit of God. Maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not five months from now, but one day would be used by the Spirit of God to declare the truth of judgment and the hope of the gospel to these people. And the question I want to ask you is, as you face the walls or the barriers of those who reject Christ Jesus, What lasting images, pictures, or words are you offering them? This needs to be done in love, right? We've seen it done poorly without love. Okay, it needs to be done in love. It needs to be done with compassion, with delicacy, with intentionality. But as you engage the world and you come into contact with those who say, no, I want nothing to do with Jesus. I completely reject. I'm done. I don't want to hear about it. What picture have you left them with? What pictures do you leave them with by which the Spirit of God may work in their hearts one day, reminding them of the message of judgment and the eternal hope, or at least in this world, the everlasting hope of the gospel? Now, you could do this any way you want. Let me tell you, there's biblical ways you could use passages. You could use imagery like Jesus uses here. You could do this any way you want. But think about the images that you leave people with when you, when you depart from them and they have yet to receive the kingdom of God, okay? And I think, again, we fail to do this for a variety of reasons. It's, it's a lot easier not to do this. But there are, there are many places and situations when we have to do more of this Okay, I, I know many of you have apostate family members, maybe children, maybe grandchildren, maybe brothers or sisters, right? And you're wanting to protect that relationship, but because you care so deeply for them, you ought to be concerned with providing them pictures of judgment and of eternal hope. of of judgment and eternal hope. As I said earlier, if we believe the gospel, this must be true of us. If we truly believe that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in him, all of those who do not profess faith are facing an eternal condemnation, an eternal separation from God, where they will experience judgment for eternity, then how can we not offer them some image of hope and of judgment? How can we not let that be kind of the last word, the lasting image, the warning of judgment and the promise of the gospel? So we ought to be exhorted to do that as we engage the world around us. Finally, this is the last thing. It's the last point. It's very quick and clear. I love the ending of this passage, okay? You're reading, and as you get to verse 17, It's as if we've kind of fast-forwarded. Now, Luke is notorious for this. Luke and John in their Gospels. Notorious for kind of hopping around to different time periods, okay? We don't get the chronological events perfectly in Luke. We get a little bit, and then he continues down one train of thought before he comes back to another. And here, the 72, they return. And I don't know whether it's been a few weeks I imagine that it's probably at least longer than a month, but I don't know for sure. The 72, they returned to Jesus, and look at what they say. It says the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And you get the idea that they came back to Jesus and they were like, Jesus, you would not believe what happened. We're preaching and people receiving the message, and we're casting out demons, and they're they're being cast out, and we're healing, and people are being healed. It was amazing. And Jesus was probably like, yeah, I know. That's what I empowered you to go do. I, I, that's what I told you to do when I sent you out. Okay, but listen to how Jesus describes their work. He, he says this. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. What a beautiful image, okay? This is a colloquial phrase. I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. It's a colloquial phrase of the day that meant falling suddenly, okay? Coming crashing down like lightning. You could say that Jesus' words to his disciples were something like, listen, I'm so glad this is how it went. I planned it like this. And just so you know, as you went out proclaiming the kingdom, I saw the kingdom of Satan come crashing down. I saw it beginning to cave. I saw the cracks in the foundation and I saw Satan falling like lightning. Isn't that amazing? When I read that, I thought, man, this is really exciting and I don't know if it's just my competitive nature, but I love the idea of proclaiming the kingdom of God and seeing the kingdom of Satan come crumbling down. The picture of seeing him fall like lightning. That makes me excited. But as Jesus ends this passage, he directs the attention of the disciples to a place maybe we least expected. He says there in verse 20, as they're rejoicing over everything they've just done and witnessed, he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And isn't that amazing? What a wonderful reminder for those who are in Christ Jesus. You you see, he says, don't don't rejoice in the things that you've just done and accomplished. And we can hear, you know, fill in the blank there, so much of the things that we rejoice over. But we might also uh, think of the things that we fret over. Do not rejoice in your winsome proclamation of the gospel. Do not rejoice in your preaching or your teaching. Do not rejoice in your deep understanding of theology. Do not rejoice in these things. Also, do not fret if you're weak in your preaching or teaching, if you're new to these theological ideas, if you don't declare the gospel winsomely. okay. Do not fret. Do not rejoice, but instead rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, Christ Jesus says to the disciples here, the most miraculous, the most majestic, the most beautiful truth for you is the grace and mercy that you've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. May it never depart from you. May it never become something that comes normal or becomes just plain or ordinary. May you always be enamored with Amazed with, stand in all of the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father before the foundation of the earth, the purchase of the Son by His blood on the cross, the redemption as sons and daughters of the living God, that now your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So of all the things of this world that you have to be excited about, to rejoice over. To have great joy in. May those joys and rejoicings. May they never become greater. Than your joy. In the hope that you've received. The mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians. That ought to grow more and more in our hearts. Not less and less. We ought to see more and more of the beauty. Of the hope of the gospel that we proclaim. That as we proclaim it. It would not be forced. Conjured up imitated, but that the truth of the gospel would pour forth from our words as those who have great gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts, knowing the price that has been paid, knowing the miracle that has been performed, knowing the work that has been accomplished. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in these things. The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice, brothers and sisters, that your names are written in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, and we praise you, and we glorify your name, and we ask, Lord God, that you would indeed be glorified. You are a God who deserves all worship. You're a God who deserves our honor. You're a God who deserves our attention, our gratitude, our thankfulness. May we speak and act as a people who know the great value of our salvation the great love of the Father, the work of the Son, the price that He paid, all that has been accomplished through the cross of Christ. May we never lose sight of that. May it never become normal or plain to us. May it always be miraculous. May it always be majestic and beautiful. We love you. We thank you. We ask that you would make us willing and able to go as sheep into, the, into a world That has wolves among it. That we would proclaim the kingdom of God wherever we are, wherever you have placed us. That many would hear the good news. That they would receive in faith or that they would be left with images of judgment and the eternal hope of the Father. That the Spirit of God would work in your timing, O Lord God. We love you, we thank you, and it's in your name we ask all of this. Amen.